Good to see each of you here. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and find Genesis chapter 12. We'll be reading there shortly. The title of this morning's message is When I Join God in His Work. If you are just now joining us this morning, we are in a series of studies called Experiencing God Together. And we are learning together the realities, the seven realities of experiencing God. Uh, In addition to what we're doing on Sunday morning, and I encourage you to be here and to listen, to take notes, you'll find in your worship folder a fill-in-the-blank listening guide to help you follow along. But in addition to what we're doing on Sunday morning, we're also studying together on Sunday night. We have a study workbook that we have encouraged you to get, and many of, of you have. We sold out of the first 225, we sold out of another 50, and we've, we've ordered some more. So um, a lot of people are taking advantage of that, but on Sunday night we're studying in more depth. And last week we met here in the auditorium, but uh, tonight we're going to meet in the gym. It's just going to facilitate our discussion uh, more easily, and, um, and if you were here Sunday night, you'll understand the wisdom in that. So we're going to be doing that this evening. During the ministry of Jesus, you know there were many occasions where he encountered people and he healed them. And he was criticized even when he healed people. One of the reasons he was criticized is he would heal people at the wrong time. You know, there's only one right time to heal people, apparently. In John chapter 5, for example, he is walking through an area, a pool. It's a, it's a, it's a water reservoir in Jerusalem called Bethesda. And all of these people who have various illnesses are sitting around it because they have a traditional folk belief that at a certain time of day, an angel would come down and stir the water. The first one in the water after that would be healed. There was one man sitting by this pool of water waiting for this miraculous event who had been there. He had been an invalid for 38 years, 38 years, not able to walk. Someone brought him there every day and set him by the pool. Jesus approaches him and has a conversation with him. You can read about it. Ultimately, the man is healed. He gets up, takes up his bed, begins to walk. The problem with that is that it occurred on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders took umbrance with that. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath day. Who told you you could carry your pallet? Now, Remember, this man had been sitting on it for 38 years. And they said, who, who told you you could carry your pallet? And, and in his excitement, he didn't even ask the name of the guy that healed him. And he discovers it's Jesus. Later, the religious leaders confront Jesus about healing on the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus says to them. In John chapter 5, verse 17, he said, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, what he was saying to them essentially was this. You think there's a problem with working on the Sabbath. Can I just tell you that God was working on the Sabbath? That I saw God wanted to heal this man, and I I joined with him, and, and so now I've been working on the Sabbath? And and they, of course, were astounded by that, and the conversation degenerated from there. They got less and less happy with Jesus. But, But he was explaining to them that God is always at work. 
God is at work all around you and me. Now, we know he's active in creation. We know he's active in the world of nature. We know he's doing things all the time. For example, the Bible says that he, he feeds the sparrows. There's not, a, there's not a bird on the planet that he doesn't feed. Now, think about that. There are 10,000 or so species of birds on the planet. At any given time, they tell us there's between 100 billion and 400 billion birds. That's a lot more birds than people. If they ever get upset, we're, we're in trouble. 100 to 400 billion birds. Every time you see a bird eat, God did that. Every time you see a bird eat, God did that. The Bible says that he's the one who feeds them. And because he takes care of this 100 to 400 billion birds, he says for you and me not to worry. Because he takes care of us. If he can handle the birds, he can handle you and me. No big deal. There's only about 7 billion of us. And so we know he takes care of creation. We know he's active in that way. But I don't believe that's what Jesus meant here when he said, my father has been working until now. What did he mean? Well, God is at work in the world to rescue the world. He's at work around us all the time to redeem and rescue people. If you know Christ today, he was at work in your life before you trusted Jesus. And he's at work right now in the life of every person here and, and all the people that you know. God is active. God is doing things. He is at work. And so this is the first reality of experiencing God. And this is it. Reality number one, God is always at work around me. Reality number one is this, God is always at work around me. On the screen, you should see a diagram of the seven realities of experiencing God. We're starting with number one. God is always at work around me. And each week, we're going to look at each of those realities and see how our lives fit into this so that we can experience God. But this is the very first one. Each of these helps me understand something of the ways of God when he's leading me and leading you. And so it's important that we know these and that we study these. This is the first reality to get into our head. Uh, all around me, God's plan is being worked out by God. So what does that mean to you and me? That means that I can get in on it or I can miss it. I can get in on what God is doing or I can miss it. We talked about that last week. God has something for us to be a part of, something that's been in his heart for you to do before the world was made. I can get in on that, or I can miss that. So, I want in, don't you? I want in. So, let's explore this. When I join God in his work, when I realize that God is at work in the world around me, I can trust him to do three things. Here's the first one. I can trust him to show me what he is doing. When I understand that God's at work around me, I can trust him. I can trust him to show me what he's doing. Now, the story of Abraham early in the book of Genesis is a story about how God was experienced by one man and how God worked through this man literally to bless the entire world. He starts out, his name is Abram, which means significant or esteemed father. But after he experienced God, his name was changed to Abraham. Not just a significant father, but now he's the father of multitudes. He is the father of many nations. Now, Stephen, who was one of the, probably one of the very first deacons uh, described in the book of Acts, he was arrested and he gave a sermon just before they, they took his life. And in the midst of that sermon, this is what he says about Abraham 
and when God first appeared to Abraham. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Now remember that because that will be important later. Before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now, I've got to be honest. One observation right away, that when God spoke to Abraham, he wasn't in the middle of a crisis. In fact, as you go back and read chapter 12, as we're going to look at in a moment, when he left, finally, he left with a lot of stuff. He was wealthy. He had been greatly blessed. Everything was going well. You know, I can understand when God leads me to change my life or do something different when I'm in trouble and there's a crisis and, and I know i got to do something different and I don't know what it is. I can understand that. But everything was going well for Abraham. And, and that's part of the challenge of following God. It doesn't always come in a crisis. Sometimes it comes when we least expect it and when it's least convenient. And so often God leads us not when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient, just the opposite. Now, the problem I see as we think about the will of God is our whole approach to the will of God is, is far less than what this book teaches. Um, to be honest, I believe our approach to God many times to the will of God uh, works something like this. God, we know, especially after last week we studied, God has a will, has a plan. And he is working out his plan in the world. His purpose will be done. Everything he has in mind will be accomplished. God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. No question about that, no hesitation. And we know God has a plan. And then over here, I have a plan. Things that I want to do with my life, things that I'm looking forward to, things that, that are in my heart to do. And here's where I believe a lot of us go. We believe that as long as I am trying to do what the Bible says, be a good guy, keep the rules, uh, be a faithful man, make decisions with reference to what God's Word says is right and wrong, um, attend church, be faithful in a Christian community, serve there, do things there, then what I do is I, I have certain decisions as I go along and as if I'm really serious about getting in to the will of God, then I say, God, what is your will in this decision that I have to make? And we're focused on our will at that moment and our decision at that moment. What is your will for this decision I have to make? Where do you want me to go to school? Who do you want me to marry? Do I take job A, job B? And we become focused on that. Meanwhile, God's plan for the world is over here. And in order for me to get in on what God is doing, I've got to move from my plan into God's plan. I've got to move from where I am to where God wants me to be. Otherwise, I'm over here all the time thinking, God, as long as I'm blessable, you'll guide me. As long as I'm not messing up, you'll lead me. As long as I'm trying to live right, you'll take care of me. And that becomes the sum total of my existence as a Christian. And meanwhile, God has a plan over here, and he wants us to get in on it. But I can miss it if I keep working my plan. If I'm always consumed with me, my stuff, and my future, my direction, my dream, 
I can miss God's plan completely. And listen to me, a lot of churches can do that too. A lot of churches can do that too. We can be so consumed with our stuff, our needs, our activities, our preferences that we miss entirely the will of God for our church. So how do I know what he's doing? Pastor, you say if God's at work, how do I know what he is doing? Well, the way that we know what he is doing is we look around us and we see something happening that we recognize only God can do. That's how I know that God is at work. I look around me, I see something that only God can do. For example, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 11 says, There is none who seeks after God. Do you believe that? It says, None seek after God. In John 6, 44, Jesus goes a step further and says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here we go. If I encounter someone who's talking to me about God, who wants to know about God, who has questions about God, I know that God did that. Because no one seeks God, he says, on their own. The Holy Spirit's obviously at work with this person. He's saying something to them, opening their eyes about something. He's drawing them. And then I realized that's God at work. God is doing something with that individual. Well, pastor, how do I learn what those things are? How can I learn to see the things in my world that only God can do? Through his word. Through his word. That's why it's so important that you and I spend time reading, learning, discovering what God is doing through his word. When I read his word, I begin to see, well, when that is happening, that's something only God can do. And I can begin to see and notice, and the Holy Spirit has more to use on my heart if I put more of his word in my head. And so I need to load up, and I need to know all that I can about how God works around me. Operation World is one of the premier mission research organizations on the planet. They have produced uh, two or three times a massive book of every country on the planet and all the basic statistical information about that country, but also how you can pray for that country. Because they have researched the spiritual needs, the condition of the church, the state of evangelism in that country, and you can get their book, Operation World, and it will tell you some of the key ways that you can pray for that country. And so they've done a lot of research. One of the things they came out with, for example, last year, is they've identified that that nation in the world, that country in the world, where the church is growing more rapidly than anywhere else on the planet. Do you have any idea where that is? I heard a lot of different countries. <laughs> Iran. Iran. The church is growing faster in Iran than anywhere else on the planet. How many of y'all would have guessed that? You know, in 1979... Uh, when they were holding hostages from the American embassy in Iran, there were estimated to be about 500 Christians in the whole country of Iran. Today, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands, some estimates as high as a million people. There's a movement of God taking place in Iran. Well, 30 years ago, it wasn't that way. In fact, in the summer of 1986, I don't believe in the Los Angeles area, where we lived at the time, we were serving with the Home Mission Board, starting new churches. When we lived there that summer of 1986, 
um, there were no Iranian churches in Los Angeles. None. If you're from Iran, most likely you speak Farsi. And there were no Farsi-speaking churches in Los Angeles at the time. There were no Farsi-speaking Bible studies. Now, we, when we went to that church, when Gail and I moved there, um, that church was running about 75 people on Sunday morning. 75. First Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. Boy, they came for handouts there, but they came to the wrong church because that wasn't the wealthy church. We were just a small Southern Baptist church hanging on, and uh, they had almost closed up, and they felt it was so important that they put a veteran missionary there who became a mentor to me, and Gail and I were sent to work with him. Uh, by the time that we arrived, in the years before we came, that church of about 75 people had helped us chart, start seven other churches in the Los Angeles area. 75-member congregation had started seven other churches. Most of them were language works. Thai, Lao, Cambodian. Um, there was a Vietnamese congregation. We started a church for Hungarian uh, people from Hungary. Um, there were two Korean congregations. There were people from various parts of South America. We had a Central American group. We had a, a group from Mexico, a Mexican group. And, and they had started seven congregations. And I went to kind of be a liaison with them. And during the years that we were there, we helped start another five churches. Uh, one of the families in our church, and we had people from all over the world in that 75 people. I mean, at Christmas time, you would hear Silent Night sung in French and um, whatever they speak in Argentina and and uh, Italian and German, uh, all on the same row. A little old lady singing these, these silent night in different languages, because that was their mother tongue. And, um, and we had a family in the church from Lebanon. A Lebanese family, mom, um, dad, and a couple of young adult uh, sisters and a son. And they kept telling us, they said, Pastor, over where we live in West Los Angeles, we have uh, encountered some Farsi-speaking people, people from Iran, and we have met some Christians among them. And we really think that if we could start a Bible study over there, that, that some, they would come and others would come to know Christ. Well, the only problem is I don't speak Farsi. I barely speak English. And, um, and so we began to pray, God... Would you give us anyone who was a Christian who could speak Farsi that would help start a Bible study over in that part of the city for people from Iran? And we prayed about it for several weeks. In fact, we prayed about it for a year before one day we got a call from a man named Charlie Hanna. His first name was Khalil. But he worked with Middle Eastern groups all over the state of California. And he said, he said Don, I have run into a man who speaks Farsi. In fact, his parents from Iran, he became a Christian as a young man, and he teaches school up in the Bay Area. We thought, let's meet, the, let's meet him. And so we flew him down. And uh, his name was Mike Abdulazada. Uh, he's gone on with the Lord now, but, but Mike was a school teacher, but he was Iranian in his heritage, and he spoke Farsi, and he had the stirrings of God in him. He wanted to be a part of reaching Farsi-speaking people. We said, hallelujah, this is... This is what we've been praying for. And so that summer, we flew him back and forth from the Bay Area on weekends. We flew him down, 
And he started a Bible study for Farsi-speaking people on the campus of UCLA. And that was the first Farsi-speaking Bible study. Now there are dozens of Iranian churches in the L.A. area, um, but that was, that was the very beginning. Mike Abdulazadeh went on to become a pastor um, and pastored several churches before his death last year. And he's a precious, precious man of God. Uh, the point is, is that we saw God at work. We knew God was doing something. Here were people asking for someone to come teach the Bible. People in another culture, people from another language asking, would someone come and teach God's word to us? And so when I realize that God is at work around me, I can trust him. I can trust him to show me what he is doing. There's a second thing I can trust him for. I can trust him to guide me with steps and not with maps. To guide me with steps and not with maps. Now I want to call your attention to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Hear it again. Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I don't know if anybody noticed, but that's not much of a plan. Did you catch that? There's not a whole lot of plan there. Get out of your country to a land I will show you. Uh, that's all he's got. That's all he's being told. Was that enough for Abram? Would that be enough for, for you and for me? This is the part of how God leads us that honestly took me a long time to understand. And I'm still growing in many ways in this area. Uh, when I was 16 years old, it seemed like all my friends were getting a car for their birthday. Of course, you know, we exaggerate when we're 16. But mom and dad, you know, everybody's getting a car. And I remember I wanted a car so bad, and, and they said, we can't do that, we can't afford that. And sometimes they would tell me that and surprise me. And so on my 16th birthday, they gave me a little box, and inside it, I opened it up. And inside it was a set of car keys. I got so excited, y'all. I really did. I just was thrilled. I grabbed those keys, and before mom or dad could say anything, I ran up the stairs, went out the door to see my new car. There was not a new car. Those were the keys to the family car that my mother drove to the grocery store and bought groceries. Now, they were going to give me that car later when I went to college, and uh, that's the first car I had. But at the time, I had to share that car with my mom. Actually, she was letting me drive it with permission on occasion. And they gave me my own keys. Now, now I got the keys. That was the, the first thing that happened. But immediately, immediately, my mind went 100 miles an hour ahead of the significance of those keys, and I assumed that because I had the keys, I had a new car waiting for me. But they didn't have a car for me. They just had a set of keys. That's what I tend to do with God. 
He gives me one step. I get one step. I know it's him. I know it's from him. And my natural tendency is to run four and five steps ahead of God and say, well, if you did that, then it must mean you're going to do this. Um, in 1991, Gail and I and our family left a church in Mississippi. It was my first pastorate uh, after California. I went to North Mississippi. You've got to think about that. I'm telling you. You leave Los Angeles, you move to, to Dumas, Mississippi. You've got to know where that is. But anyway, we moved there, and we were leaving there after, after pastoring those dear folks, and we were, we were leaving because God had put it on our heart. We were leaving we honestly did not know the next step. I had a suspicion, but I wasn't certain. But we, we took that step. I even told the kids. I opened them up to Genesis 12. And I said, kids, this is what we're doing. We're, we're moving. We don't know exactly what God has next, but we're going to go join with some friends in, in Baton Rouge, and, and, um, and we're going to see what God does next. Now, I knew that there was a church that they were going to sponsor that they wanted to plant in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And I'd been a church planner, and I thought, maybe God's in on that. And sure enough, we got there, and God said, as we prayed about it over several months, I want you to move to Lake Charles, Louisiana. It was clear. I'm not going to go through that process, but it was clear that God was saying that. And we went and joined with a group of families that had been meeting in homes, and, and we were there to start a church, we thought. You see, God didn't tell me, and I, I went back to my journal, and I can show you this. God didn't say, go to Lake Charles, you're going to start a church, it's going to be successful, and I'm going to bless it, and it's going to grow and reach a lot of people. He just said, go to Lake Charles. I didn't know that when I went to Lake Charles, that within a year after that, the mission would be closed. Even though it had grown initially, it would, it would be closed. I would be working a secular job. I would not be in full-time Christian ministry. And I would be making about $7 an hour um, with a wife and uh, four children at home and one on the way and no insurance. I didn't know that. He just said, go to Lake Charles. And, and, and I learned from that. Now, God had a plan, and God worked that plan out, and it was a wonderful plan in hindsight. But at the time, it didn't feel so wonderful. But he said, take this one step. I want you to listen to John 14, verse 6. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now notice what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He did not say, I will show you the way. He did not say, I'm going to give you a map. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a set of directions. What did he say? He said, I am the way. You stay with me. I will take care of your directions and your maps and all that kind of stuff. I am the way. Jesus knows the way. He is the way. And when you and I understand that, it will set us free. You see, if I don't trust him to guide me step by step by step, then every time I have a decision to make, I'm going to crumble. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to be afraid because I don't know the will of God. But see, he doesn't give us the plan or the map. He gives us steps. And in fact, he tells us, don't even worry about tomorrow. Don't even think about tomorrow. I just want you to be with me today. 
follow me today, step by step, do what I lead you to do, what I impress on you today, and you will always be in the center of my will. It's not about being in the center of God's will four or five times in our life. It's about being in the center of God's will every day. And as I follow him that one day at a time, he keeps me in the center of his will. So I brought with me today some steps. Steps. Use your imagination. This is a step. Okay? Now, the way it works is I want all the steps at once. You see, God comes along, and he gives us a step. And he says, here's a step I want you to take. And there's the step. You with me so far? He hadn't told us anything else. He's holding all the steps. But there's the step he wants me to take. So I look at that step and I say, wow, I don't know about this. That looks kind of scary. Get out of my country? Away from my family? Away from my, away from my father's house? That looks scary. God, can you give me some more steps? I would like a few more of those steps. And, 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 we, and we say, if I had some more steps, Lord, then I could decide if I wanted to take this step. But God doesn't work that way, does he? And uh, if he gave us all the steps, there's some reasons why he doesn't give us all the steps. Okay? Uh, let me give you one good reason why he doesn't give us all the steps. Because he wants to keep us close to him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. One of the reasons he doesn't tell us everything is if he gives it to us a step at a time, we have to stay with whom? With him. He is the way. And so he wants us to have a relationship with him, to be in, in intimate with him, to know him, to have fellowship with him, to talk to him, to love him, to enjoy him. It's not about just knowing God's will. It's about knowing God. And he uses our experience of making decisions to keep us close to him. Now, that's one of the reasons is, is to keep us close to him. Another reason why he doesn't give us the whole plan is we would want to alter the plan. Anybody with me? If he gave me the whole plan, I would look, okay, this step's okay. This one, this one needs to be over here. And this step, this step needs to be over here. And then I would look at it and say, this step, we don't even need that one. Now, the moment I begin to alter the plan, the moment I begin to change the steps... It is no longer God's plan. You understand that? The moment I change it, it's no longer God's plan. It has now become my plan, and I have stepped into God's place instead of walking with him and listening to him. So he doesn't tell us everything up front because he wants to keep us close. He knows that if he told us everything, I would try to alter the plan. But let me give you another reason why he doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't tell us everything because if I knew everything that was coming, I wouldn't go. I just wouldn't go. Abraham, Abraham, I'm, I, what if he had told him, Abraham, by the way, I want you to go, leave your country, leave your father's house, do all that kind of stuff. And I want you to go to Canaan. And by the way, when you get to Canaan, there's going to be a famine. And the famine is going to be so serious and so scary that you're going to take everything you've got and you're going to run off to Egypt and you're nearly going to lose your wife. And, and let me tell you something else that's going to happen. Your nephew, Lot, he's going to make some really bad decisions. In fact, his decisions are going to get him in so much trouble that you're going to have to go rescue him and, and risk everything you've got in order to rescue him. Let me tell you something else that's going to happen. You know, I told you you were going to be the father of many nations, and Sarah's barren, which means she's going to have to have a baby if you're going to be the father of many nations. Hey, listen, 
It's going to happen, but you're going to have to wait 25 years before it happens. She's going to be 90 years old, and you're going to be 100 years old when it finally takes place. And, and then when you do finally get that son that you've been waiting for, this, this one that's going to make you the father of nations, I'm going to ask you to take him out on a mountain and, and to set your heart to sacrifice him because I want to know if he's an idol or if you're more in love with me than you are with him. And, and by the way, that's a plan. Isn't that a wonderful plan? You want to, what would he do? What would Abraham do? I mean, he's a great man, but I don't know if I knew everything that I would want to do that. Abraham doesn't know any of it. Abraham doesn't know any of it. He just knows one step, one step. That's all he's got. And he takes it. So step by step, staying close to him, walking with the Lord, seeking to know him, to enjoy him, to love him. If I do that, he promises to keep me in the very center of his will. So when I realize that God is at work in the world around me, I can trust him first to show me what he's doing, secondly, to guide me in steps, not with maps, and then thirdly, to fill the rest of my life with meaning and purpose. To fill the rest of my life with meaning and purpose. Jesus taught his followers, he says to you and me, that if we will follow him, he will make your life matter. He will make your life have impact. He will cause your life to be significant. If I follow him, your life will have eternal consequence. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and here it is, and that your fruit should remain. He said the same thing to Abraham when he told him that his life would matter. He said it would matter to the entire world. In Genesis 12, verse 2, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you, here it is, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what if he had said no? Would God's plan have failed? No, I don't believe that. If Abraham had said no, God's plan still would have succeeded. He would have found another Abraham. He would have found somebody else. But God's plan always is accomplished. But Abraham would have missed out on the greatest moments of his life that were going to affect not only his family, but other people for all eternity. Now, there was a great danger that was happening to Abraham at this moment. There was a great danger to what was taking place. And I want us to see that. But before we do, I want you to watch this clip of a man named Francis Chan as he talks about uh, following God. Listen to this. People today that are just saying, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. There wasn't a lot of that when I grew up. Um, but what happened with those who did have that spark and that excitement, I saw how the church almost squashed them. Um, and 
I'm praying for this next generation, for the young people who are just saying, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. And they're doing it. They're going overseas or they're, you know, right where they're at in the inner cities or in their own suburbs, just going, you know, I'm going to be radical. I'm going to follow Jesus completely. I want it all. I'm, I'm not about the games and, and about, okay, entertain me to death in, in the church. I want to follow Jesus and I want to experience him. And I guess my challenge to the church is, is for those that are maybe my age or those who are uh, um, even further along, it's like, would you set the example for the young people? Because what happened um, in my generation when we were younger, uh, there were those who were radical, but there weren't people, once they got married, everything changed. Once they had kids, everything changed. And I'm just praying, oh God, could I be an example of someone who's married and has kids and is still thinking kingdom first? Like saying, you know, like 1 Corinthians 7, those who are married should live as though they're not. Uh, there's a sense in which this mission is bigger and can we still live and take risks and still surrender our lives and, and say, you know what, it's me, my wife, my family, I want to demonstrate to them, you know what, look, when we follow Christ, yeah, that was a little scary, yeah, that might have been a little dangerous, yeah, that was not the, you know, logical move to make, but God did call us that direction, and let's head that way, and I want my kids to experience what it, what it looks like when we live by faith, but not only that, I want to be an example to the young people to say, you know what, your, your mission with the Lord doesn't end when you get married, and suddenly, oh, well, you're dating, so focus on each other, and oh, it's your first year of marriage, you know, just focus on each other, and oh, you just had a kid, you know what, then then take time for that, that little kid, and until he goes to school, then you'll be free. But then once they're in school, it's like, oh, they're teenagers now. Just collect that family together and worry about yourselves. But then you're, you're teaching them this mentality, again, is not about going out in the harvest and being a worker. It's about let's protect our family now. Now let's keep us safe. Let's find some gated community and, you know, and keep them all in our house away from all the bad people. And that's, <laughs> there's no excuse for that. That is not what, you, you can't find that in this book. It's about living for him and you're missing out. Not only are you missing out on life, but your children are missing out on life when you do that. That's why so many of the kids, when they turn 18, they just ditch God altogether because they didn't see anything real in your life. They, they didn't see that adventure and, and you didn't put yourself in positions where God had to come through and then he comes through and your whole family was going, wow, that was amazing. I am never going to leave that God. No, you just created a little bubble for yourself where how was God even going to operate in, in that? And I don't know. I, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to sound negative. I'm just, I just get sad because I go, not only are you missing out on life, but we are turning away our children by the droves because our lives are not the adventure that they see in Scripture and they are not experiencing the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing like a Christian version of the American dream that's watered down and we just make excuses for really idolizing our families um, rather than really putting Christ in the mission first. Something remarkable takes place just before the Genesis 12 appearance uh, to Abraham. Before God appeared to him, um, something else had happened. Uh, the appearance in chapter 12 actually occurs in Haran. Uh, Stephen said that God first appeared to him in 
Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia. So, so what took place? I want you to back up to Genesis 11 to the last two verses. Genesis 11, verse 31. And uh, hang with me, think with me, okay, for just a moment. Genesis 11, verse 31. Terah was Abram's dad. Listen to what it says. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. All right, that's what they set out to do. Now, why did Terah decide to uproot his family and leave Ur? I believe, this is just your pastor talking, but I believe that God had spoken to Abram, said, leave Ur, and, and he shared that with his family. And Terah heard that, and he says, okay, we're going to leave. And so they're going to go to Canaan. And that's where God wants to take Abram. They're going to go to Canaan, and it says they're going to Canaan. And then it says, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, now going from Ur to Canaan and stopping at Haran is like going from Wynn to Washington, D.C. and stopping in Nashville. You have not made the trip to D.C. God is leading them to go somewhere, and they stop. They stop short of what God has in mind. So something here is happening that I believe was very dangerous to Abram's walk with God. Do you know what Terah means, his dad's name? It means wanderer, like someone who goes in circles. Terah. It means someone who loiters, a loiterer. The name can also mean delay. That's Terah's name. And he probably knew what God had said to Abram. They're starting out to Canaan, but something happens when they get to Haran. They say, you know, it's not so bad here. And they stop, and they settle down, and the original vision that Abram had, Terah's not with it anymore, and everything stops. And they, they, the Bible says in verse 31 that they dwelt there. It means they settled there. That word dwelt is the same word used earlier in this very same chapter in verse 2. In verse 2, it's used to describe the people after the flood. They are multiplying. God had told them to do what? To spread out all over the earth. God had told them to spread out. And so instead of spreading out, though, it says in verse 2 that uh, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and there's our word, and dwelt there. They settled down. They were disobeying God. God said spread out. They settled there, and they tried to build the Tower of Babel. And you know what God thought of that? Not much. And so they had settled down. And so it would have been very easy for Abraham to settle in Haran also. Was he tempted to? I don't know. That would be, that would be speculation. But they did settle down. And Abram was there. And, and so what happens to your life and my life when we just stop? What happens when we, just, when we just stop? I know what you said, Lord, but isn't this good enough? I mean, I did leave home. Don't I get credit for that? Isn't this good enough? And I don't know about you, but, but maybe you started out and God was speaking to you when you were younger and you said, I'm going to go do whatever God wants me to do. And you started out and then you went into that zone that Francis Chan was talking about. And something, something was lost. 
And the moment came where you knew God wanted you to move, God wanted you to go out, God wanted you to do something else. Maybe it was something locally, maybe it was something overseas and everything in between. And you knew God wanted you to do it, but you didn't do it. Said, no, I'm through. And you settled. And now you're waiting on God to do something in your life. You're at a place where you're waiting on him while he's waiting on you to join him in his purposes and in his plans for your life. What happens if Abram doesn't leave Haran? God's plan gets done, but Abram misses something. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line. I cannot go with God and stay where I am. I cannot go with God and stay where I am. That doesn't mean that God's going to call you to move to the other side of the earth. He might. But it may be as simple as God saying, look, I want you to spend time with me. Start with the relationship. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. Start with the relationship. Am I spending time with him? Do I love him? Am I getting to know him? Am I I reading his word on a daily basis so that when he does does speak to me, I'm at least at a place where I can recognize that he's speaking? Because I see him speaking to other people in the Bible. And because I see that day in and day out as I read his word, he speaks to them, he speaks to them, he speaks to them, and then suddenly he speaks to me. And I'll know it's him. But if I never spend time in his word, I may not even know that it's God, and I may not know what he's saying. And so maybe he's first just calling you to himself. And that's the first step you need to take. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says the Father sent him into the world to rescue you. You say, what I need to be rescued from? Well, first, from your sins. All of us are sinners uh, from the very moment we were born. We were old enough. That's what we did. We sinned. We exerted our will. We did what we wanted. and, And we've lived our life, perhaps, to this moment where I don't need God. I can make my own decisions. That's sin. And so God, in calling you, sends his son. Jesus dies on the cross for your sins, and he carries your sins away. But then he doesn't look at you and say, just now go do the best you can, try to be a good person. No. The Bible says when you trust Jesus, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside you, and he is there to change you from the inside out. Do you want to trust Christ today? Do you want to start that journey? That's the first thing. That's the first calling. That's the first step is God's calling you to himself. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. There'll be pastors standing down here at the front, and they are here to counsel with you. And if you want to trust Christ, have your sins forgiven, begin a new life following him today, I invite you to come, whether you're up in the balcony or downstairs. And then, brother or sister, I don't know where you are in your walk with God, but I know the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us, doesn't he? And when you and I are listening, whether we're in Sunday school or whether we're in an auditorium like this, and God speaks, it is so important that the moment I know it's him, that I say yes, that I don't settle down. And you say, well, pastor, I think it may be too late. I settled down years ago, and I realize that now. I settled down. I I told God I wasn't going to go any further. I haven't been seeking his will for my life. Take the first step. You may know Christ, you may have trusted him, you may have have, uh, known that you were saved for years and years, but are you walking with him? And today he's calling you, would you just take that first step to follow me, to come to me, to be with me, to love me, and let me love you.
As God has spoken, how will you respond? Would you